0: Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Welcome to our latest edition of the Y87 podcast. With me today is Mary Broach. Mary, welcome.
1: Thanks so much, Tim. Great to be with you.
0: Oh, so what are you up to these days?
1: I am living outside Philadelphia. I am a part-time consultant in organizational development. And then the main interest and kind of focus, I would say, of my life is working in women's collective giving as a volunteer. It's not my paid job, but it's really the thing I'm most focused on. So grant making and learning about philanthropy and learning about ways to be most effective with one's donations. But it's all through the lens of women working together by pooling their donations into large grants. So that's been a big part of what I do. I have three daughters. They're all out of the house. My youngest is 23. So we're kind of longtime empty nesters. And then on the personal front, my parents recently moved cross country from California to Philadelphia near me. So they're down the road for the first time, which is awesome, but also life changing. And I have a puppy. I have a puppy.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. Well, Maybe we'll talk about empty nesting at the end here because uh, we're about to be empty nesters. And I have to say there are aspects of it I'm really dreading. Um, We just had all four kids home for Thanksgiving and it was just so nice to sit around the table for even a couple of hours with everybody. And I miss it.
1: Yes, I miss it too. I love it. Every time my daughters are home, I was just thinking about this. I remember when my oldest went off to college um, and she's now 29 and I remember that first morning after we had dropped her at college, we were back home and just being down here, making coffee downstairs and thinking she's not up in her room. Like, this is tragic. What happened to our life? She's gone. But then, you know, you get used to it so quickly. And when our third went off, it took a little bit, maybe a couple of days. And then we started to realize how great it was. Like they were off doing their thing and we started to have a lot of fun. So. Oh,
0: that's great. That's great. So I-, I did want to talk to you about The philanthropy that you've been working on, I believe the organization you work with is Impact 100 Philadelphia. Is that right? That's right. You've been doing this for a while. How did you get into this? And what exactly is women's collective giving?
1: Thanks for asking. Yeah, it's um, so I had... I did a bunch of things early in my career and moved, started in investment banking for some, like like so many of us in our class, and then moved more and more toward the nonprofit side and ended up being the managing director of a small nonprofit here in Philly for about 12 years um, while my kids were little. And I did it from home and just worked out great. I loved the job we moved overseas. And for the first time, I couldn't work. We were in Singapore, wasn't allowed for our contract for my husband's job going over. And when we came back, I was really had missed working. I was looking for something to do and trying to figure out my next step career-wise. And a friend who I didn't even know that well told me about this idea of Impact 100, which was first launched in Cincinnati in 2005, I believe. And She told me about the idea and said, did I want to start it with her here in Philadelphia? And it's such a simple concept when you're getting started. It was to get 100 women to donate $1,000 each so that we could award one collective $100,000 grant. And I love the idea that these donations would come in the door. In the first half of the year, you're kind of building the membership, telling people about the organization for the first six months. And in the second six months, you flip and you focus on your grant making. So together you, those who want to be involved, review proposals, have very in-depth discussions about where the funds could have the most impact, and then ultimately select finalist organizations for the members to vote on and award the grants to. So I just thought it was like this very kind of streamlined, interesting idea. In 2008, just before we founded the organization, interest rates were still kind of, you know, decent range. And we thought, oh, great. We'll have this money for six months. We can invest it, get a little interest earning to help support our operations (laughs) that quickly vanished. And we never again had really any interest earnings. But it just is a really, I think, kind of democratic, inclusive model to get people involved in philanthropy. So for myself, it was joining Impact with writing that $1,000 check back then. That was a big donation for us. And it was probably the largest single check I'd written at that point in my life. But what's that phrase in basketball, like you take the lid off when you haven't scored in a long time and you finally score it. Like for me, it kind of took the lid off the idea of what kind of donations I wanted to make. And, um, you know, it's not like we have unlimited funds. It's something we have to really think about, but it has made me want to make larger donations and want to support organizations that are not on the radar for a lot of people. That's one thing I've really learned through Impact 100. We focus on smaller organizations.
0: Well, Let's unpack. You've got a lot there. So first of all, when you're in that first half of the year, you don't know where the money is going to go. How do you convince people to write a thousand dollar check? Because it is a large check. And I imagine at this point, you've been doing it a while. Sometimes you get bigger checks. But how do you get anyone to write a check? Because it's basically like, here's my money. I trust you.
1: Yeah, the, the first year that was really the case. We were amazed. My son Beth and I, starting the organization, came up with a list of, I think, 300 women when we were f- that first April of 2008 that we were going to send a letter to and describe the organization and make the pitch. And basically saying, like, leverage your personal donation into something bigger. We don't know how this is going to go. It's a startup, but you'll learn about nonprofits in the region and you'll be doing something for Philadelphia, you know, with your donation. And we mailed our letters on a Thursday morning. And we always talk about this on Friday morning at 8.30. I don't even know how the mail got there in time. But this one woman called me and said, I'm in. I've been looking for something like this for a long time. And we, within a month, we knew it was going to be a go that we'd get at least 100 people. There was just this very kind of instant enthusiasm for the idea, which is what we felt too in, in founding it. And I think it is that same thread across all of our members. They like the idea of they're a thousand dollars, or we have younger women who join for 500 now, but that going into something much bigger and accomplishing so much more than it could if they just, you know, gave it on their own on the side. And we get about 200 applications each year from small nonprofits. So you, if you choose to participate in that, you learn so much about the region. I, I, my life is completely different. I have to say for the 14 years of being an impact 100 in terms of who I've met, and the organizations I've learned about and chosen to, you know, kind of stay involved with in one way or another.
0: What are the organizations that you've been involved with that you're most surprised by? Because you've got this transformation. Your mind is open to new things. Yeah. What are the ways that your life has been opened up?
1: I can just tell you about a couple organizations. The one that comes to mind recently is YSRP. It's youth sentencing and re-entry project in Philadelphia. We have a terrible record of incarcerating young people for life in the adult system when they're not yet adults and, you know, no bail, just some terrible legacies in our city. And this organization works with kids and adults who were sentenced when they were children. So sometimes people have been in jail for a long time and they're working with them and they're helping to provide the legal um, support to get them out of jail and to make their case. And It's this scrappy organization. I think when we funded them, they got $100,000 through our grant making. When we first funded them, they maybe had six staff members and they're now they've grown and they're, you know, on the radar for a lot of people, especially in the current climate and where people's interests are. But just seeing how much they did with so few people and they're so centered on the people they serve and they're very aware of including those voices of the people they serve in their organizational decision making, their program design. They have a support group now that's led by a couple of older men who are now out of prison and supporting people as they just are emerging back into society. And YSRP provides a structure for it, but it's totally led and designed by the men who've been through this themselves. And they know what they can offer to the younger guys. And now they're starting a women's group because the women spoke up and said, hey, what about us? But that's one example. Another example is Philadelphia Orchard Project, tiny, tiny organization. Their budget was less than two hundred thousand dollars when we funded them, and they got a forty thousand dollar grant that year. They work on vacant lots in Philadelphia to plant fruit trees, and when they plant them, they involve the community members not only in the planting but in them caring for them, harvesting the fruit, educational programs, and it is transformative for those neighborhoods, it's unbelievable. It goes from a blight of this, you know, just trash ridden lot to something that people are proud of. They can sit out under the shade in summer. We've heard birds and uh, animal life comes back to that community. And again, just a tiny scrappy organization I never would have heard about except for their application to impact.
0: I find it interesting that your donors are women. So you're, you're organizing women. But it doesn't sound like you're only focused on giving grants to causes that are for women.
1: That's right. That's right. Some collective giving groups do only focus on women's issues, but for us, we we have five focus areas, and we're starting to think about a lot of this. This may change in the future, but they've been five general focus areas, education, arts, and culture, health and wellness, et cetera. And so applicants apply into those. And our funding priority really is to fund smaller, lesser known organizations that are having a real impact. And that's so broad. You know, it can include anything. So it becomes very difficult when we're assessing applications to really decide who to move forward or not.
0: How do you do the assessment? I mean, how do you know whether an organization is having impact? You know, how do you make these choices?
1: I have come to feel after 14 years of doing this, that it's really hard to know. And it is really a gray area. There is so much exciting stuff going on in philanthropy right now. There's a movement called trust-based philanthropy, which is getting away from the traditional power dynamic, which we were a big part of with Impact 100. We were solidly in that space of, we're the funder, we've got the money, come to us, fill out our special application. You know, we didn't mean it that way, but that's the way it went into effect back in our early years. You have to fill out a special application for Impact 100. It's pretty long and difficult to fill out. You tell us about your impact. We want something that's new or special for our grant. And what many foundations are coming to realize, and we are definitely, is that's not the biggest way to have an impact. That's really about the ego on our side. We have the power, and we're feeling like we're just going to kind of control how this goes forward. But really in this notion of trust-based philanthropy, it's about stepping out of the way because who knows what the needs are and what the solutions are best. It's the nonprofits who are working on the ground and it's the people who are closest to that community. So we are trying to make our application extremely easy to fill out and have material that organizations already have available for the most part. And then they submit a letter of inquiry and we then ask for a full proposal from a subset of what initially comes in the door, and then we conduct site visits for even a smaller subset of that group. And through getting to know the organizations as we move forward, our members talk about how all the needs are really often just equally, you know, uh, intense and current and, um, you know, relevant, but trying to figure out where is the best fit for our money. And often it is an organization that's at a particular juncture where, they really need a new staff member, or they might really need some kind of capital project that the money can make a big difference. But every year we have five times, 10 times the number of really deserving, excellent organizations than we have the money to fund. So it's always a tough choice.
0: Do you ever have ongoing relationships with organizations?
1: You know, that is another idea in philanthropy that's become uh, very prominent, that it's much more effective to work with a group over, say, five years, 10 years. Our model's not quite set up that way because women come in for a one-year membership. So our grant period, is. if it funds are dispersed over two years, we're also thinking about that. Might we lengthen that period? But in our case, it's really more kind of an infusion of $100,000 maybe over two years that can help push an organization forward, allow it to accomplish something that it's kind of at this juncture, ready to do.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. So. Does your organization provide anything in addition to the grants, you know, consulting, advice, that kind of thing? Or is it just here's a grant and we're really going to get out of your way because you know what you're doing?
1: Yeah, we definitely encourage members to get involved. And so we've had a lot of members who join the boards, even join the staff of organizations we've funded and that they've learned about through Impact 100 a lot of volunteering going on once members know an organization, and then they'll continue donating individually. But we don't have a formal relationship beyond the grant period. And I think that's tricky, too. We've thought about offering, trying to pull together some consulting, but I don't think we're really in a position to do that. There are experts out there who focus in, you know, strategic planning for nonprofits. I actually do that in my day job a little bit more. But I think for us to try to get to that level It's not realistic, and it's just not the best use of really the nonprofit's engagement with us. I truly believe for them, giving them the cash is the right thing to do. And then we try to keep promoting them. We'll have them speak at programs. We really try to spread news about them far and wide once they've been funded.
0: So what do you think the future of philanthropy is? You know, obviously, we're Yale alums, and I'm sure people will be asking us for money. And I I look at the size of the endowment and say, (laughs) Really? Um, And I I do think about like, where's the impact going to be? You know, where, like, just in education, where, if I was going to give a donation, what's going to have the biggest impact on our society? I struggle with it.
1: Yeah, I do too. It's such a great question. I have just my very particular viewpoint on this, which I'm sure is not everyone's, but I more and more feel that you, Look for an organization whose mission really connects with you, and of course, personally, that can be any kind of mission can have a ton of value for you. So that's just a personal choice. Then I now really am very focused on the leadership, and I think you want to see leaders who are, you know, forget about the pedigree, forget about charisma of the leader. So much of that kind of is the first thing we see. But I look for people who are smart, are great listeners are good managers of their staff, really you know, empathetic kind of partners with their staff and who have a vision for their organization. And then ones that also as an organization, very connected to the community, listening and bringing in the voices and the perspectives of the people they're trying to serve. That's another big movement in philanthropy is it used to be this divide, foundations telling organizations what to do. You know, you, If you do this, I'll give you this grant. If you start this new program, I'll fund you. But really what a lot of people now think is more effective is to say you're embedded in the community, you're hearing the needs, we're just going to give you an unrestricted grant and you spend it the way that you know best. And we don't want to put any restrictions on it because if things change in a month from now, we don't want you to be limited in your actions and cut down how nimble you can be in response to a crisis, for example. During COVID, we really saw that with funding. The fact that our grants for impact are now unrestricted and have been for the last five years or so, we heard from a lot of our grantees. It made all the difference in the world. They shifted from one group in Norristown, a neighboring community, shifted from running educational programs to taking groceries to families. And our money could be spent for that. They didn't have to even tell us until after the fact that that was where the need was. So I don't think I'll ever make another restricted gift in my life. <laughs> I don't, know, don't hold it to me too much, but I think, you know, unrestricted giving is the way to go, in my opinion.
0: And so how do you stay current in what the current trends are in philanthropy? You sound very informed, not just about your organization, but broader trends. What do you do to, to be informed?
1: Uh, yeah, I thank you for saying that. I'm not sure it's true, but I, I try. There are... a uh, Just a lot of networks out there. There's a network for small foundations called Exponent Philanthropy, provides a lot of great information about these trends. Board source, I don't know if you're familiar with them. For anyone involved in a nonprofit, I would recommend board source. They give a lot of advice about governing boards, strategy. And even if you're watching a nonprofit from the outside, you can learn a lot from them. Chronicle Philanthropy puts out a lot of good information. We have a regional network in Philly. There's more than coming out on a daily basis than you could possibly read, but it's really helpful to have all these wonderful resources to kind of think about where you want to go. And that's one of the things I love most about Impact 100, honestly, is that We are beholden to nobody. I mean, we just, to our members for sure, but we're just trying to do the best we can by the nonprofit community in Philly. And if we have to change our process or our our philosophy in order to do that, we can. So it's been a lot of strategic work over the years to keep improving in terms of our impact and our sensitivity to the nonprofit community. And I've really enjoyed that.
0: So a lot of the people in our class are coming to a point in their lives where they have to think about what they do next. And I've certainly heard a number of people say, okay, I am have had a satisfying career in whatever my industry is, and I'm willing to do something else. I don't want to retire completely and being involved in a nonprofit, even on a volunteer basis, but in a meaningful way would be a way for them to contribute their skills and their life experience to a good cause. Yeah. What advice would you give to classmates who are thinking about that? Mm. How do you find a good organization? Yeah. How do you contribute? You know, at this stage in our lives.
1: Yeah, I trust my gut instinct a lot, but I've learned not to trust it every <laughs> I like think you have to uh, do a little homework along with that. I think one. Good piece of advice I got a long time ago, and I think it's really true. Don't jump, especially like to a board position, don't jump in too quickly. Um, Make sure you spend a little time getting to know the organization, you know, just as a general volunteer, go to an event or um, watch a webinar, whatever it might be, to get to know them a little bit. And you're really trying to figure out the fit between their work and your skills and personality. And it's not always going to be there. So just taking a little time to see how right it feels. And I, I do think if you even, you know, go to one or two things or, you know, read up about the organization, if you're getting a strong feeling of connection with them, it's probably a valid thing. And you can always start out just as a, a volunteer in some capacity. I know almost every nonprofit is usually open to board members, you know, if not this year, then getting into the pipeline for the future, it's really tough to find board members who have the time to serve and be active members. So that can be a great way to get involved. But I think it's a wonderful thing to do. I've done a lot of volunteering over the years. And I've always found that, you know, I just do it because it feels like the right thing to do. And I get so much more back every single time than I ever put in Everything I've done as a volunteer, I've ended up getting, you know, jobs and I don't know, (laughs) funds from it, uh, you know, finding out about other opportunities that you're not doing it for that reason, but just being engaged with people that you kind of have the common values with is just really powerful.
0: So I found it interesting that the two things that you highlighted earlier, dealing with people coming out of prison who have been sentenced as children and the apple orchard tie actually into two of the podcasts that will be coming out. So we have one who's an urban, are into the things you're talking about. So we have Mm -hmm. one classmate who, uh, Morgan Grove, who is, uh, his podcast is already out, who's an urban forestry expert. And then Jose Agravide will be talking in a couple of months about restorative justice and work that he's devoted Mm -hmm. his life to. Um, And so I guess the one question I'd like to ask you at this point is, how do you think we as a class can cross-pollinate the excellent work, some of it charitable, some of it government, some of it, you know, for-profit, but still mission-driven so we can help each other? Because some of the things that have resonated with you have resonated with others in our class. right? How would we do that?
1: It's just such a great question, Tim. I might have to think about that one and get back to you. Yeah, it feels like it shouldn't be that hard anymore. It's so easy to kind of Uh, you know, form discussion groups or affinity groups around certain topics online. I, yeah. I don't know if there could be, are you thinking in terms of the reunion or just more long-term going forward?
0: i am just generally, we have these very specific things that have resonated with you that have resonated with other people in our class.
1: Yeah.
0: And some of them, they've, they've literally have devoted their lives to it. Yeah, And it's more than just having an affinity group. Cause if you'd say, Oh, I have an urban forestry affinity group that I wouldn't have known what that meant right. a month and a half ago. You know, just a thing to think about.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. It seems a shame not to know more about each other in terms of this stuff. Yeah, that's
0: why we're doing the podcast. (laughs) That is great. So in terms of what's next for you, what do you want your legacy to be? We're going to be at our 35th reunion in, in June of 2022. So fast forward to our 50th reunion, which is 15 years hence. So like, what do you want to be able to say to us at the 50th reunion that you got done?
1: You know, I'm pretty happy with what I'm doing right now. And if this could keep going, whether it's Impact 100 or some other organization, I think I'd really like to stay in the nonprofit realm, supporting and in any way I can, elevating these small organizations that are so vital and are often so overlooked. I was just talking with my husband yesterday about Giving Tuesday, which is, uh, you know, I think you can have all kinds of opinions about it. I think one issue around Giving Tuesday in terms of equity and supporting smaller nonprofits, if you don't have the marketing staff or the communications folks to push out that message about your nonprofit, I think what we're seeing is some, you know, the money is going toward the bigger, Organizations that can really drive the message and it might actually be exacerbating inequities in the nonprofit world rather than kind of putting out more money. I think it remains to be seen, but I just really am drawn to these smaller organizations. And I think if I can keep doing that and keep raising more money, we're about. Four and a half million raised through Impact 100, which is, it feels like a lot to me. It's not a lot in <laughs> the philanthropic world, but we think that's mostly or almost all new money. That it's, you know, women who were giving elsewhere and have chosen to find another thousand dollars or 500 for Impact 100 to join. So the fact that it's new money into the community, I just love. And I think the more we can spread the word, I'd love to see us get to a thousand members. We're around 450 right now, 450 women. So, to give a million dollars a year through Impact One Hundred would be fantastic.
0: Well, wow, it sounds like a great deal to me, and especially when you pair it with the kind of people you've described who are so passionate and energized, and so they're taking what might be a modest sum and really having impact in their communities. So, I wouldn't minimize what you've done. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable.
1: Oh, thanks, Tim.
0: So we've gotten to the point of our podcast where we have our lightning round. We have a few quick questions. Yeah, I'll ask you some short questions, and if you could give me a quick answer, that would be great. So number one, what's the most important class that you took at Yale?
1: I would say Edmund Morgan, Puritan History. All right. I think, nothing to do with what I ended up doing, but just a fantastic class. Also, Vince Scully has to be up there, too. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Definitely. And for me, Master T, and, and when we're recording this, it's just found out that Master T had passed away. So um, oh, no. that was a very impactful class for me. So we will remember Professor Thompson very fondly. What outside of the classroom was the most important part of your Yale experience?
1: I'd say residential college, being in Pearson. I love that feature of Yale going in and loved it while I was there. Intramurals, hanging out in the dining hall for hours on end after every single meal. The friendships, you know, being in the um, entryways, whoever you hung out with, just, you know, becoming friends across the class and across the years. It's really fantastic.
0: So there have been new pizza places that have come into New Haven since we left. One of them serves pizza with mashed potatoes on it. Mashed potatoes on a pizza. Is that a brave innovation or an abomination?
1: (laughs) That's a bit strong, but I'd go toward abomination. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I <It's> a <mistake. laughs> I took my family on an hour detour last summer to go back to Sally's because I hadn't been in such a long time. It was the best. We got a takeout and took it to—is it Worcester Square? This yeah, yeah. park right by Sally's. Uh, we ate on a park bench. It was unbelievable.
0: Oh, well, here's a tip. There's a new, uh, relatively new, um, documentary out that you can stream called pizza, a love story. And it's an examination of the history of new Haven and Pepe's and modern and Sally's. So I highly recommend it.
1: Thank you. It's great.
0: So final question, looking ahead to our reunion, what would you like most out of the reunion?
1: you know it's just always so much more fun than i even think i know it's going to be fun and it's even better than i think and it's just the downtime to hang out and chat with people on the lawn and in between meals at meals just a lot of open time for that i think is really all i look forward to and and the surprise conversations that come from that you know you sit next to somebody you didn't really even know at school and learn you have a lot in common or just are so interested in their lives so that's it for me.
0: Well, me too. And, and you'll be happy to know that it's in Pearson College this year. So
1: I heard that.
0: <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending the time. This has really been great.
1: It's great talking with you, Tim. Thanks so much.
0: In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale college class dared to break the mold the Yale college class of 1987 is planning what no Yale college class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022. We will be gathering in Pearson college. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale college class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion, be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.